Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. inspiring us right now. Have you got anything that that you're feeling really inspired by? The Night and the Gardener. This author, Cassidy S. Dale, says that there are basically two groups of people in the world, those who approach the world by being knights, and they feel that they have to vanquish everything like a knight in shining armor and those who are gardeners who um, see their job to give birth to a new world. So one ought to fight for a new world and one wants to give birth to a new world. And um, one sees the Garden of Eden story as Adam and Eve failing in their task and being kicked out of the Garden of Eden to make their way on the planet. And the other sees uh, Adam and Eve as being expelled from the garden like an infant is expelled from the womb. And I'd never really heard it that way before. But there are, it occurred to me today, two different tellings of the search for the Holy Grail story. Mm -hmm. And one of them is um, the one that's probably best known as, you know, King Arthur kind of thing, the knight in shining armor that goes in search of the grail by fighting his way. It's always a guy way to get what he wants. And the other one, which is the one that Robert Johnson writes about in his book on masculine psychology, uh, where Parsifal is to go find the Grail King and um, deal with him with compassion. But Parsifal fails the first time he does that because um, he doesn't know that that is his purpose, is to heal by love. And I didn't know until reading this book that in the Parsifal version, Parsifal goes to, is challenged by a knight and is about to go to battle with him or fight with him. And he finds out that this Muslim man is his half brother. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that in the story. Yeah. 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 And so um, Parsifal, through loving, uh, another person, a woman that he marries, and uh, through uh, reconciling with his brother that he didn't know that he had, he goes back to the king and asks him, what ails you? And with that, the earth is healed. So, yeah, it's a great story. It's like the Ruby Sales beautiful interview with Krista Tippett, Where Does It Hurt? Yeah. It's such a much more compassionate way to approach pain and suffering than to conquer it. 
right? And I think what you just pointed out was the dominator model versus the partnership or participatory model of existence. And both are both are present. So that means that both must be true. It also reminds me of the Native American story about, I think it's the young grandson says to the elder, mm-hmm. I can't stop the, the bad thoughts in my mind, but I also have good thoughts. And the elder says, we all have an angry wolf and a tame wolf. And the young son says, well, how do you know which one is going to be more powerful? And the elder says, it depends on which one you feed. And we, we are almost gain an addiction to the path that we choose. So if we feed the dominator path, the conquering conquistador, knight in shining armor, triumphant conqueror, that's, that's the path we're on. So I kind of wonder, I think I said last week that the teachings of Buddha and Jesus will disrupt us. They will disorient us from that path of dominator model. And I think it's a worthy disruption. Yeah, and and, uh, I want to say when we gather this week that uh, I I haven't talked to you about this, but I I, I have this plan, this vision that after we finish the Eightfold Path, that what we might do is go back and and, um, look at a version of a path that Jesus laid out or that is laid out in the teachings of Jesus uh, called the Beatitudes. Yes, yeah. Because they're very... Uh, they're similar. Both Buddha and Jesus did not prescribe commandments like you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. But they simply said, if you want liberation, if you want freedom, then here's a path to walk. Yeah. And um, there is this incredible, to me, paradoxical nature of the path, like what we're going to talk about Sunday in right speech, is that... um, you can't be engaged in violent, hurtful speech and have a peaceful life. Right. You just can't do it. So I think it's an important distinction to talk about violent, hurtful speech versus truth speech. Because sometimes when we speak the truth, someone else feels hurt by it. Why do you think this, that sort of truth telling can sometimes also be harmful to the one who is the receiver of a truth? Well, um, people feel exposed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, the gross image that I have is that when you walk in a room and turn on the lights, the cockroaches flee to the corners. Um, but it's, I know you don't like cockroaches, but. It is a weird, weird fear. I mean, I just, I mean, they are a little bit gross, but I am terrified of them and I can, I can do a lot of things. Like I'm a, pretty strong girl, but cockroaches reduced me to a (laughs) complete wimp. So I think that when you say the truth about some things that are going on, like the current struggle that we're having in this country about really coming to terms with the the roots of our uh, racist history, Mm -hmm. uh, that's painful for people who have lived with the illusion that they're not racist to right. see, oh my God, oh, oh, I participated in this and I didn't know it. I benefited in this way and I wasn't aware of it. 
I think that's one of the reasons, one of the ways that truth uh, can can cause people to feel ashamed, embarrassed, um, guilty. Yeah. Guilt, not a bad thing. That's one of the reasons, I think. Josh and I were just talking about a little bit about this this morning. You know, there in South Africa, when apartheid was overturned, they participated in a truth and reconciliation event. And it, it was a long, they called it the truth and reconciliation trials, but I, I would like to say it was like an entire program. And those who suffered under apartheid, the black South Africans, got to tell their truth to those who had been in power. This is how I suffered. This is how the rule of apartheid affected me. Um, sometimes even directly to those who had done the harm. So police or guards who had been abusive or to powerful leaders who had kept systems of oppression in place. So there was a direct interaction between those black South Africans who suffered under apartheid and those white Afrikaans of Afrikaans or Dutch descent who were the rulers during apartheid. In the Nuremberg trials, after Nazi Germany fell, the same thing got to happen where those who suffered at the hands of the Nazis and under a fascist regime got to tell their truth in the room with those who did the the punishing or the the torturing, I want to say. So there was a direct relationship between the telling of the truth and those who caused the suffering. And, and we were sort of fantasizing about what would it look like to have a truth and reconciliation program in America, which I nominate Brian Stevenson, director of the Equal Justice Initiative, to head up. Um, but there isn't anyone alive today who was a slave owner, mm-hmm. but there are descendants of slave owners. I, I am one. There are descendants of slaves. Josh is one. And what does a truth and reconciliation trial look like today mm-hmm. when, when we, A, haven't been truthful about that history? We never did it after, after slavery, after emancipation was, uh, became a, the law of the land. We didn't ever have any kind of reconciliation around it. We had a failed experiment called Reconstruction. Then we had the Jim Crow South. Then we had, uh, you know, separate but equal. Then we had the civil rights movement. And, and we're even getting far enough away from the civil rights movement where those who either suffered or participated in abusive behaviors during the civil rights movement, there are not very many of those folks alive anymore either. And I just, we, we were just sort of wondering, what would a truth and reconciliation event look like in America when the actors and the acted upon are directly, we're, we're getting into the descendant part of it. Yeah, a lot of generations removed. And those who have been killed by police officers, mostly black men, they're not alive to have a truth telling. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it takes some kind of creative imagination around what healing could look like in this country when it comes to a country built on racist practices. I started reading yesterday a book um, called Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm -hmm. Have you read it? 
I have so many books that I've started and haven't finished, and that's one of them. But yes, it's it's lovely. So I confess that I have just started reading it, and it's just absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. because it is about storytelling. And um, I think one of the things that we might get to in right speech is uncovering a narrative about who we are and how we got here that is true for everybody. And um, so when you ask the question about how does truth hurt, you know, when you read, for example, the truth about Columbus, Mm -hmm. it's not a pretty picture. Mm -mm. But most white people were given a story that was just simply not true. Every child who's been through public education in America was given that narrative. I grew up in the South in a time when there was a great fear of uh, Russia. And I can remember when I was in the seventh grade, eighth grade in public school in Columbia, Tennessee, mm-hmm. my teachers telling us about the, the, oh, Russia is such a horrible, horrible place because they indoctrinate their people with propaganda that isn't true. While at the same time, those teachers were indoctrinating us with propaganda that wasn't right. true. Yeah. I remember then, you know, when I started being sensitive about issues of race in my own home and community, uh, asking questions about why doesn't John get to come to the same school that I do? And because we played together after school, uh, mm-hmm. why can't he come to my mm-hmm. church? Uh, I was told, well, they prefer it that way. They want to be with their own kind. And uh, that was the story that I was told. And um, if you live with this story long enough, you begin to believe it is the story. I never fell for that one, but um, it just didn't seem true to me. It seemed an incredible lack of freedom. I I completely relate to that. I think even though I grew up in a, a different era from you, some of those same questions were still being asked. Why are the people who are working outside late into the night for low wages, mostly black and brown? Why are the people who are working inside and living in big houses and don't have to work outside, mostly white? It didn't seem to me that one was working harder than the other. In fact, if I had to say one was working from the, harder than the other, I would say the laborers were working harder physically than the desk mm-hmm. people. And yet there was a visible disparity so let's go back just a minute to this book that I started reading, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah. The, the book begins with a story about Sky Woman falling out of the sky and coming to the earth and giving birth to the earth, actually. Mm-hmm. Bringing a, and and uh, she was pregnant mm-hmm. when she came. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. story. I mean, it's a beautiful story. I think that 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 Native American storytelling about this, these are our roots and this is where we came from, that's a very important thing for those people to be able to hang on to about this is who we are and this is why we should take care of the earth in the way that we should 
And most people in the Western world don't get indoctrinated with that kind of story. And so we're alienated from the earth. Right. And, and um, I think one of the consequences of that is this current pandemic. Right. It's, it's kind of the, um, we get indoctrinated more with that, that conquering model is the one that, that we as Americans have identified with. I should say we as probably white Americans have identified with as, as our true story. One of, one time I was at a event through the Rothko Chapel in which I was listening to a Lakota elder speak. And he made the point that everything that he said in white man's language was translated, you know, from his own comfortable native language. And in Lakota language, there is no word for I. There is no I that is separate from the earth. There is no I that is separate from you. And so when he was first learning how to translate the message of the earth into white man's language, he had to learn the word I. Anytime he speaks in the language of what he refers to as white man's language, he is disconnected from, from himself to some degree. But he has to speak in the language that the white man can understand. How do they refer to themselves if they don't have that first person pronoun? I think it is in a name that refers one back to the community, refers one back to the earth refers one back to one's gift in the world. Some, some Native Americans don't even name their children until they see what the gifts are that they bring with their birth. Mm. So your name comes with how you engage with your surroundings. Well, I, I want to go back to what you said about we've had this story about conquering. Mm -hmm. That's the night myth. Right. It's not the gardener myth. And um, we've lived with that story for so long as a national identity yeah. that in order to change it, I think that the system may have to collapse. Yeah. I think this is the position that Joanna Macy has begun to take, that she for a long time held to, as we all would like for our liberal democracy and institutions to go, go on uh, because we have benefited from them. The world has benefited from them and blah, blah, blah. All of that is true. Mm -hmm. But uh, we may be getting to the position where the institutions that we have created no longer sustain us. Right. For people who are, who are looking for a secure place to stand, I would just like to say that no such place has ever existed anyway. Mm-hmm. It's a, that's a, that's an illusion. Uh, we're we're always in the position of instability yeah. and change, and this is the the first uh, of the steps of the eightfold path is a recognition that nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. It mm -hmm. arises and falls away. It arises and falls away. Right. And so, what will come? I don't know. Yeah. But in the process, we need to take care of each other. Yeah. It seems like an impossible ladder. Plato talked about the sort of difference between the, the sacred and the profane. He referred to it in terms of a ladder that you sort of graduate up this ladder toward the good. And for so, so long, I mean, that, that repeats back to 
Cartesian dualism too. There's a separation between you and me. There's a separation between mind and spirit. I'm sorry, mind and body. And there's a hierarchical nature of the ladder, right? In order to get go up a ladder, it's like you can almost imagine like someone trying to get ahead of those below him and stepping on someone's head or stepping on someone's shoulder as they get up the ladder. And what I love about a reframing of the message that was given to Plato from Socrates about this graduation of spirit was came from Diotima, the, the oracle, who also, by the way, said, love is in the metaxis, in the in-between. She, she really talked about this growth, and this comes from a professor of mine, Marilyn Keller at my institution, who wrote about Diotima's message was more like a spiral. Mm. And we've talked about this image of the spiral of this sort of widening, constantly evolving spiral where if we think about the, the image of the spiral, it's more of a transcend and include type of image rather than a step up and over type of image, which is the latter. So maybe, you know, it comes down to for sure masculine and feminine dominator and collaborator you know we we have we have really invested in the dominator myth think about how much of our suffering is uh, as people and as uh, a collective is due to the fact that we um, band together uh, with the purpose of creating safe places right and we think that we can maintain security and I think that what both Jesus and Buddha would say is that there's no place you can go to hide from the truth. And every effort that we make to create one um, just causes us more trouble. I'll give you an example of what I'm thinking about. And this just shows my evolving thinking about this. It has started actually before I started reading Braiding for Sweetgrass, but it's certainly been intensified since uh, I began reading this book. I have been referring in a kind of pejorative or negative ways to people who have tribal mentalities. You know, the tribal mentality is the warrior mentality and it's to go out there and protect ourselves from others and to vanquish and to get more and all that. But actually, the word tribal might be a very good word. Mm. Uh, and I think now I need to replace uh, tribal with, um, I'm going to call it religious nationalism. Mm. Because tribal mentality in braiding sweetgrass is a beautiful thing. It's interbeing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a profound realization because, may, it, you know, every word has more than one meaning depending on how we use it right so tribalism when we're bound by that i think is how you were using it we're bound by our mentality that is only this group and only includes this group mm -hmm. right whereas and i don't want to fantasize or um sort of become nostalgic about if only we had the native american elders to teach us however there's a lot of wisdom in, in how the Native American tribes engaged with the earth. They, they really had the idea that they were not separate. 
And that tribal mentality is really beneficial, <laughs> that kind of tribal mentality, because it's expansive. So it's interesting that a word can indicate expansive based on practices, right? Or limited based on reinterpretation of it. We also, when we think of things like tribal, we think of archaic or the word savage, right? They're like, like the Taliban. Right, right. And also, you know, the way that Africans were referred to and then collected as labor, it was a Christian mission. We need to convert these savages, right? So we have created a negative association with what you're seeing as the word tribal. When we deepen the awareness of tribal practices, there's actually a lot of wisdom, a lot of community, a lot of you know how uh, Native Americans do their council? Have you ever learned about how a council is run? Remind me. There's always an elder who sort of guides the council, but it's a group of um, people who speak into whatever the issue is. There were some Native American tribes who had the practice of telling the community dream every morning. So there would be a gathering and in the circle, the elder would invite the conversation and here's what we'd like to talk about. Let's talk about the community dream. So a few people might share their dream and then it becomes evident which one is the community dream, which is the dream that's the message for the community versus for the individual. And that happened through this council process, through this council of speaking as you're moved, a bit how the Quakers organize their services, right? Speak as you are moved. Right. And when you speak, be really thoughtful about whether your how your words are landing, whether your words are contributive or disparaging. This, I think that wisdom of the council is one that we sure have not heeded. Mm -mm. I think too that um, what, you know, I was trying to do some research the other day to see how many times in the past I have talked about the Eightfold Path. And I am thinking that this may be my third time around. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but I went back to look to see uh, what I could resurrect. And um, I'm so grateful for Richard Wingfield, who was able to help me get into that process of going into archives because you know, over the years, computer programs change and I might have filed something away 15, 20 years ago that's not available in the current format. So Richard's been really helpful to me in being able to extract some of those archives and look at it. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is true for me, Holly, in I think all of the teaching that I do, if I go back and look at something that I wrote, say, 10 years ago and compare it with where I am now, it's like another person wrote that. Yeah, you know, I do and, know, and what I what I'm beginning to understand is that I'm having an opportunity to see how my basic assumptions about how life is and who people are has continually changed over the years, and I'm not holding myself up as a paragon of virtue about this, but I think it's the people who are not willing 
to look at their basic assumptions and to challenge them, they're the ones who get in the most trouble. Right. I think that's sort of, you know, going back to the idea of a truth and reconciliation process over the course of history that we weren't even alive for, looks at telling the truth about our ancestry as well as telling the truth about our current iteration of self or understanding of self and how that self has evolved. I just read something in, the, in this book, this poetry book by Young Pueblo called Inward. I've referred to it before and it's just a two line poem. In one lifetime, we can be reborn many times. And I think when you said, I think this is my third cycle through, I'm not exactly sure if you're referring to your third cycle through teaching the Eightfold Path. Mm -hmm. um, probably each time you've been reborn. Yes. It's, yeah, it's different. It's different each time. There's a couple things I've been reading. And actually, you're the farmer in the night idea. You've read some Wendell Berry. Oh, yeah. I love Wendell Berry. Yeah. He, he writes an essay about sort of the tenders and the, the destroyers. But you know that Wendell Berry himself is a farmer. Yes, I did yeah. know that. Right. Yeah. So he has that uh, the analogy of, of farmers being tenders. It may be the farmer and the warrior, but the farmer is the tender and um, the other is, is the kind of ravager if you will. I'm reading his book right now, The Hidden Wound. It's really kind of a, a novella, a, a short book, about 90 pages, in which he explores white racism and how he reckons with that in his own life. He was in part raised by an African-American man and woman who helped his father and grandfather work to the land that he grew up on. So I, I want to read to you a Wendell Berry poem. May oh, please. Yeah. It's, it's kind of long, but um, I hadn't thought to do this when we started this, but it's called Manifesto. Mm. The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Mm -hmm. By Wendell Berry. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance. For what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you do not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that prophet. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to Carrion. 
Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Would this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields, lie easy in the shade, rest your head in her lap, swear allegiance to what is nice your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the emotions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark a false trail, the way you did not go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Mm. That's one of my favorite poems of his. Yeah, I, I, I think inspired by Sherry, actually, I began to read poetry more and more as my kind of daily, part of my daily meditation. Uh, partly it's what I can manage because of how the energy of this household wakes up as soon as... <laughs> As soon as I do, <laughs> yeah. um, but but it's also just poetry. Uh, I think Alice Walker said this: poetry is the voice of anguish. Poetry is the writing of not knowing how else to put something into words that can hold imagery and hold experience and hold emotion all at once. When you when you read the part about planting sequoias, it made me think of Ross Gay, who wrote a book called The Book of Delights. And it's little essayettes about things that delight him. He spent a year every day writing about delights. And then he compiled sort of the best of into a little book. And one of them, and it occurs to me, I wonder if this isn't the very crux of right thinking. Right thinking is not about ourself. It is about knowing the wisdom of the land, our ancestry, and preparing it for the survival and the life and the livelihood of our descendants. And he talks about planting pecan trees in a grove. And he asks the person with whom he's planting about how long does it take until these trees begin to bear fruit? And the guy says, oh, 250 years. You know, so they're doing something that they hope for 250 years from now. And I just got this idea that maybe that's right thinking. Mm -hmm. It's not about self. It's about this long line of coexistence and interbeing. And, and every thought that we have and every action that we pursue, are we considering the whole or are we considering just the self? Examining our assumptions about what's true. Keeping our mouth shut, maybe. Mm -hmm. Kind of ironic i would say that while we're making this podcast but <laughs> i'm going to tell people in, i mean if anybody's listening to this podcast they may um already know this but um as a bribe to get people to get more connected with us i'm going to tell people on sunday that if they will follow us on instagram if they go to instagram they can see the video i posted about white jesus which I think really blows away a lot of assumptions that people make and done very funny. I, it's done by somebody in the BBC. It was really funny. Yeah, it was good. I liked it. Uh, to point out another Native American 
widely used mythology, but it's not only unique to Native American storytelling. Is the spider woman who wove the world into existence, you know? And um, spider, so spider woman is a weaver and she weaves life into existence. And it just gave me that image of mm. the teachings of the Eightfold Path as being so interwoven, right? That each one points at another. So as we're trying to sort of categorize, well, this is right view, this is right thinking, this is right speech. Mm-hmm. It's actually that like right view and right speech are deeply interconnected and right speech and right action are deeply interconnected. Sylvia Borstein says they're all like a spiral. Uh, to just go around and around and at different levels. Yeah. I think that right speech now means something very different to me than it did when I first encountered Buddhism back in the 60s. One of my one of my teachers, the man that I usually refer to as my first spiritual teacher, George, and he was an interesting guy in that he was a former Roman Catholic priest who converted to Buddhism and he was gay. And um, I, I loved him deeply and he really affected my life in a lot of powerful ways. Mm-hmm. But he said when we were dealing with the right speech thing, I want to give you the assignment of trying to go a week without talking about anybody positively or negatively, unless they are in your presence. That really reduces the amount of words to say. Yeah. You know, because for one thing, it relieves us of the opportunity to gossip. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Did you hear about what happened to Mary Sue and all of that stuff? Well, in some ways, it's like, well, it's a good thing for like famous people that we don't know. It's like their lives were just designed to be gossiped about. Just kidding. I'm not (laughs) actually promoting that. But the way that we do news and the way that we value, you know, fame, let's say, it's like it's a it's an entertainment that we talk about those people out there who are so disconnected from us and they can become unreal. And, and, you know, Jim Finley gives a really helpful understanding of right speech when he Mm. says, you know, when you first meet somebody, let's say that when I first met Sherry and fell in love with her and I just went on and on and on telling people about her and how wonderful she was and she could do this and she knew this and she was such a good clinician and good dog diagnostician and blah, 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 blah. I'm, I could go on. And now that I have lived with her for almost 40 years, I say less and less about her because I was talking about just a small piece of the coastline, but now I see that there is this giant country of a person that I can't yeah. put into words. Oh, to put our loved one in, into words is so hard. You can't yeah. do it. Yeah, that's so true. Um, that that's also you know we are also talking about this um, widen widening the net of someone's of who they are. You know, widening the net, casting that net wide of allowing someone to sort mm-hmm. of fill in the spaces of who they are rather than us fill it in for them. And I know I'm guilty of that. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and how you're being. And I know I've done it in my marriage. I know I've done it to my kids. Mm. Um, And so there's a certain kind of allowance then of allowing people to fill in the spaces for themselves. 
and then us being a witness to those spaces as they get filled and honoring them without having to name them for for someone you know one of the one of the basic assumptions if we're going to look at basic assumptions that we all need to back off of is assuming that we know what other people are thinking that's right yeah we don't but and how many how many arguments or political positions or religious wars are started because i know what you're thinking yeah and i'm going to get you before you can act on it i have two things one i have a wise teacher in my life i don't know if you know him his name is bill <laughs> and he once taught me that i liken this to right speech as being like emotional judo right when you say that i feel hurt mm -hmm. but that's not what i meant that's not what i meant i i know mm -hmm. but when you say that i just feel really hurt but i meant da -da -da, you know so this kind of this sort of toss back and forth of mm -hmm. it may not be what you meant but i want you to know that the impact landed differently maybe than your intention and to what I've learned from you is that when we are honoring ourselves truly and truthfully, we can't help but also honor the other person's integrity. And so when we are speaking from our true self, we're also honoring the other person's true self. And that's how I sort of see emotional judo or right speech. You know, there's another pattern of learning about speaking called nonviolent communication. And hopefully we'll get to chat with Brooke on this podcast sometime soon about her experience with nonviolent communication. But nonviolent communication is essentially based in when this happens, I feel this way and it disrupts my need for, would you be willing to? So it's, you know, identifying the feeling identifying the unmet need or the met need and then making a request if you need something to be done differently and also a big part of it is learning to hear no no i can't i can't meet your request mm -hmm. and so then we become less attached to a certain person meeting our emotional need or less attached to a specific outcome from that certain person and we learn again that the net just continues to widen I don't only have to go to Josh to meet my need. I can look into myself. I can look to friendships. I can look at other ways of, of meeting a need. And it takes a lot of pressure off of, mm -hmm. off of relationships when we can learn to engage in emotional judo as well as in nonviolent communication, I think. So uh, in the Jesus database, the scholars who have really studied the sayings of Jesus have constructed a database of Jesus sayings of things that he likely said, he could have said, he didn't say, but this is in line with his teaching. He didn't say it all, that sort of thing. They, people have devoted their lives to this kind of biblical research. And one of the things that is very likely an authentic saying of Jesus, he said, uh, don't take an oath. Now that's translated variously, but let your eye be eye and your nay be nay. And um, I think that we, people who claim to be in the Christian tradition, do themselves an enormous disservice by not knowing the context in which 
these sayings were made and to whom Jesus was speaking when he said what he said. In that culture where Jesus lived, he was talking about talking to people who were at the bottom of a patronage. You survived in the society at the time Jesus lived. If you could provide something to the people in the class right above you, if you couldn't, you were you were considered the expendable. You were on the edge, and that is like a pyramid going up. And and so, the people who could give something to the emperor mm-hmm. were his mm-hmm. patrons. He protected them. They had a deal, and they pledged an oath, and and he honored that oath. And the people below them pledged an oath. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't play. And so thereby he was upsetting the whole social order. And since the George Floyd incident, I have gone back and thought how much of our public conversation across the races has been stymied Mm -hmm. because there's been this cultural contract that black people don't speak out. They take as it were, an implicit oath not to disturb things. And I think now we're having an opportunity to hear some of what uh, people have stifled for a long time. And it's not pleasant, but we need to hear it. We could see this whole thing as a kind of Christ evolution, a kind of right speech to systems of power to disrupt systems of power. And this, you know, we, we too in this country have a caste system. Oh, we do. Yeah. I know that I will probably say this when we um, when we dialogue on Sunday, but because I, I say it a lot to uh, in my counseling sessions, and I say it when we Sherry and I do seminars about relationship. Uh, most people think they know how to talk, and most people don't. Mm-hmm. I know that's a broad generalization, but talking is a skill. Mm-hmm. And I know that most people think that they're good drivers, but the accident rate shows that's not true. Um, and most people are, are not good talkers. That's right. Sometimes a, a couple will come to see me and they will say that the problem in their marriage is that they don't communicate. And I say that's not true. Mm-hmm. It's impossible for any behavior in the presence of another person not to communicate something. Yeah. And so we have all these communication issues across class, classes and cultures and races in this mm-hmm. country because mm-hmm. we don't know how to talk. Mm-hmm. And there's so many ways of talking, as you say. The body speaks, the eyes speak, looking away speaks. You know, it's, there's so many ways that we, we acknowledge or speak something into being. And you know, I think about just, I mean, here, I am a person who has engaged in counseling for more than half of my life and has, you know, studied psychology and like to think I'm on a spiritual path. And I am so aware that in conversations of those places in me that just get really defensive or I just want this conflict to go away. So, okay, okay, okay. You know, just, just how difficult communicating through conflict is and i i don't think that it's ever the goal to eradicate conflict but to move through it intentionally 
and with awareness. And that is very, very hard. And here we are really at a, at a, at a, at another peaking point of having to address the conflict that got, that founded America as we know it. And we want to, we want to just be like, I don't want to look, I don't want to look, I don't want to look. We want to move through it without difficulty, but it's just impossible to move through conflict without difficulty. I know this is a whole nother topic and that we probably (laughs) need to bring this to an end, but um, this is one of the places where I think the Enneagram is such an important, if not indispensable tool for people to know what their basic personality stance in life is that 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 we're kind of given that I think at birth and um, we use our basic personality to move through the earth if we never ever ever know ourselves by doing something like uh, Jim Hollis advises in living the examined life if we don't know that about us then we don't know what kind of impact what kind of emotional wake we leave in the lives of other people. Right. And um, that's so sad to me. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, yeah. people don't, what's the old saying? Know, know thyself. Mm-hmm. To thine own self be true. Well, you can't do that if you don't know who you are. Yeah. So th- you're right. That is a whole other topic. And I, because th- I have so many I, thoughts about what you just said, but we'll save it for another time. But I would love to read this, another poem by Young Pueblo in his book, Inward to End, if that's okay. Okay. His words are right speech, you know, um, and I encourage this book to anyone who is interested. He writes, they asked her, why are we here at a time when there is so much misery and despair? She responded, because you answered the call, the earth signaled for heroes, and the heavens sent forth the ones who were most ready to grow and unleash their unconditional love. You're here to shine the light of your own healing, to offer the world the gift of your balance and peace. That's wonderful. So we are called to be heroes. And the more we are in right understanding of that journey, I think the more readily we can participate. Well, I've had fun talking to you. This has been good. We didn't know where we were going, and we got there. We sure didn't. Oh, good thing I pressed record at the beginning. (laughs) All right, we'll sign off now, and we'll do this next week. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Episode 6 of In Between, an Ordinary Life podcast. This was recorded on July 1st, 2020. You can find us on our website at ordinarylife.org or on Apple Podcasts.